Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to PillowCube.com and getting one for yourself. We did a very extensive survey once a year, and then then three times a year, sort of at quarterly intervals, we did what we called a pulse survey, which is just a, a mini version of it. And there are lots of tools you can use for employee surveys. You can create stuff for free in Google Forms. The thing that was really powerful about CultureAmp is that it also had industry benchmarks in it. So for any given question you were asking your own employee set, you knew your own answer and you knew how it trended over time, but you could also compare it to best in class. And uh, you know, that that process of doing that several times a year really gave us a goal to shoot for. But, but it wasn't just the measurement, it was that, okay. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Matt Blumberg. Matt, thanks for doing this. Yeah, great to be here, Jess. So I'm excited to talk about your new book. Our listeners know I'm a real book nerd, but let's let's go, go through a, a little bit of the career history and, and some of the highlights here before we get into it. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. where do you want to start? Well, we can start wherever you want. My early career, I had uh, a couple jobs, both of which were were helpful for getting me into the business of being a, a startup CEO. My first job out of college was management consulting, which is just sort of a great business 101 job. And then my second job was working in venture capital for a couple of years. And uh, that was incredibly helpful to get to see the startup process and the financing process from the from the other side and uh, convinced me that I really wanted to to be a business operator, learn how to grow and run businesses and ultimately start my own. And then I had this amazing experience from 1995, 6, 7, 8, 9, which was sort of the very beginning of the, of the commercial internet. I got hired by a, a company that at the time was a small cap public media and tech company in New York called Movie Phone. Uh, so for anyone who remembers the old 777 film phone service, interactive phone service, the company had built this really innovative business and, and business model starting in the late 80s with centralizing movie listings and automating ticket purchases over a touchtone telephone before there was really an internet. They hired me in early 95 and it's sort of, it'll really date the project, but my, my first job there, my first project there was figure out what the internet is and figure out what we should do about it. So I had this great experience all through sort of .com 1.0 
of building and running what was at the time probably a top 50 web property, doing some really, really innovative things uh, with it. And we ended up selling the company to AOL in 1999, kind of at the, the first peak of the of the internet market and I was on the executive team it wasn't wasn't my company but I had this great experience of you know sort of building a business in the early days of the internet inside of another company yeah you know we're gonna go on to talk about you know founding a business that later went on to go past a hundred million dollars in revenue I'm interested in what lessons you think you learned there that that helped you achieve what you did later at movie phone you know it was interesting I, I learned you know I certainly learned a lot about the, the technology of the internet and sort of the promise of the internet. A lot of that was self-taught, right? It's not like anyone else at the company knew a ton about it either. You know, I learned management lessons for sure, although much, much more trial by doing and trial by fire than anything else. And more important than that, I think I learned some of the things I liked and some of the things I, I didn't like about how the organization was run. And, you know, I, I knew from even before that in life that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I think at every job I had, not not just movie phone, but you know, but but all uh, three jobs after college, I kind of had a mental ledger going the whole, t- whole time about, oh, when it's my company, yes, do that, no, don't do that. And w- one of the things that really struck me from actually from all three of my my jobs, which were all you know knowledge worker jobs, right, management consulting, venture capital, technology and media. One of the things that 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 really struck me about all three companies was they got some things really right about when it came to people and management. And they all said the right things. They all had said, you know, people are our most important asset or, you know, our biggest assets walk out the door every day or one, one of those sayings. And then all three of them in different ways and different ex- extents really treated their people the way you would expect to manage people in the early 1900s on the factory floor. There was not, you know, sort of what I think today has really become commonplace, which is sort of this new social contract with workers in the knowledge economy. And that's a lot of what fueled my not only interest in starting my own company, which I did in 1999, and then again in, in 2020, but in in the approach that that I took to leading it and the approach my management team took to building culture. And it was just very important from for me from the beginning of starting my own business to get that to get that formula right. So what we always called it my company from 99 to 2019 my company was called Return Path. We described our culture as being a people first culture. And you know, we we believe very very strongly that the best companies and the companies that are going to win are the companies that have the most engaged and happy workforces and that you get there by by really rooting the business and the culture in the philosophy of people and of of not just attracting great people but of of growing them of developing their careers and keeping them deeply deeply engaged in the business so we spent a tremendous amount of time on that over the years at return path and and all of that was kind of rooted in things i saw and didn't see in all of the places that i worked before that so i'm really interested you know before and well, let's do this for one second. Tell us what tells your new company. Tell us what Bolster does. Then I want to go back to our turn path for a minute. Great. So Bolster, which is just over a year old now, so we started it in April 
of 2020 is a marketplace for on-demand executive talent. So we are trying to build a new way for companies to think about scaling their leadership teams, for CEOs to think about scaling themselves, and to think about scaling their boards of directors. Uh, so essentially, it, it's a marketplace that it works like any other online marketplace like Airbnb or Uber, but the product is finding vetted executive talent for a few different types of roles. It could be a board of director seat, it could be a coach or a mentor, or it could be a freelance executive role like a part-time executive or an interim executive. Okay, I got questions about that, but I won't forget them. We're gonna, I wanna stick on return talk for a minute. You know, so you've, you've done these interesting things. You go to Princeton, you're at this, you know, top 50 web company, you're, you're, you've got some unique experience. And my understanding is return path is largely around kind of innovative things in in email marketing. Is that accurate or am I getting that wrong? Yep, that's exactly right. So when you think about a space like that, it it you know, it doesn't necessarily come across as like the only guy who's ever thought of marketing on email. That thing must have for sure been great. So when you think about a space that it's in any you know it's easy for anybody with like a Wix website and and you know three hundred dollars to LegalZoom to claim that they are now an email marketing specialist right you don't have a huge barrier to entry what do you feel like you did different to grow business to a hundred million dollars plus in revenue we actually built a different kind of business we were not an email marketing platform okay uh, where you would think about like a Mailchimp or a Constant Contact or a Salesforce marketing cloud at the at the high end we found and i think really exploited and developed a really important niche in email that we completely owned and dominated we had a couple of small competitors over the years but but we built a business with a lot of network effect and that business was solving a a different problem it wasn't just how to get email out the door it was how to make sure it gets delivered into inboxes and that might sound like it's the same thing. Well, of course, if you get it out the door, it goes into inboxes. But one of the things that we um, discovered and was kind of underlying the, the origin of the business was that email didn't make its way into inboxes for a couple of different reasons. One is people changed their email address and never went back and told the website, which was our initial product concept in 1999 and 2000. But then the business evolved starting in 2002 or three because email filters. So the spam problem got worse filters got thrown in front of everything, and then filters had a pretty high error rate. So what we found is that marketers and publishers who, who had you know lists, opt-in lists of their customers were sending out millions of emails and 20 or 30% weren't getting delivered. And that was a really big pain point that we took it on to solve. So some of our customers were actually the big email sending platforms, and then most of our customers were actually the end brands, the marketers and publishers. But there was a lot of network effect in our business because we built the largest uh, data set and kind of real-time analytic model for understanding what was going on with email. And then we actually supplied data feeds to all the major mailbox providers. So Yahoo, Hotmail, Google, et cetera, who then used those to make sure that their filters weren't blocking legitimate email in an effort to get rid of spam. So a little bit of a nerdy business. But if you think about the email business as a multi-billion dollar sector, we were able to solve a critical problem for that sector and do it in a way that was was pretty defensible. You know, it's interesting. I Our listeners know about all the audiobooks I read and 
you know, recorded like 600 episodes of this show. It's interesting to me how often simple principles show up in successful person after successful person that I get to interview. And and to be frank, it's it's why I started this show is I wanted to see what would be the common principles across all these different kinds of high achievers. You know, to me, the principle there, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this if you see it differently or, or what, your, what your thoughts would be is, I think about how tempted we all are to try and build something better, right? I need a business that's better. We need to be better than the competition, faster than the competition. And yet, so often, I get somebody on the show, they grew, you know, $1.4 billion business they sold to Adobe or something like this, and they built something different that was valuable, not just better, you know? And yeah, there's a lot of platforms out there. There's There's a lot of consultancies or agencies will help you design your email marketing, but you're like one of thousands. You know what I mean? Like we'll help you guys think what your email drip campaign could be. Like there's so many ways to be in email marketing, just like the other guys. And so in in certain ways, I'm not that shocked by your success, because if you could do something drastically different and valuable, and then actually reach your goal, it seems like success is a pretty natural byproduct. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's it. look. It's not surprising. I know. I know lots of people who are successful business people and people I admire, entrepreneurs I admire, who've uh, who've done very well building uh, businesses that look like lots of other businesses, but have some sort of differentiation to them. And you know, w- when you find a category that's enormous, you can do that, and you can you can you can do very well with that. I've always sort of gravitated toward toward things where it's a little more inventive or finding really a fundamentally different way to do something. And MoviePhone, which again, wasn't my company, but I was an executive there, was a great example of that. It was just a better way to find your way to the movies in the 1980s and 1990s before there was an internet. And even when we had the internet presence in the in the mid to late 90s. And that's what our trend path was. And to some extent, that's what we're trying to do with with Bolster. You know, we're we're not we're not just saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do executive search, you know, better than other people. We're saying that that for early stage companies, there's there's actually a different way to think about the whole thing. Fractional talent is a different way of thinking about scaling your leadership team, coaching and mentoring are not something you're you're going to go to a search firm for. So there's certainly overlap with an existing sector and a big sector, but we're trying to think more about what the customer's experience is and what their needs are and and how to start from scratch solving those needs instead of start with something else. So let's say somebody is they're drinking the Kool-Aid and they're saying, "Yep, okay. I I believe in different. I'm going to invest in different. I'm going to try and create a new category or create a new subcategory within this that we can be the category king of or whatever, right? What's some principles of differentiation that have done well for you or that you would advise people to think about as they're trying to figure out what their what their subcategory they're going to own is? We always love starting or I always love starting with the customer. And when you when you think about a broad problem space, whether it's, you know, sort of jobs or scaling an executive team or going to the movies or getting email out the door, you know, you want to you want to find a customer set that spends a lot of money. And then you want to spend a lot of time getting to know that customer set. And maybe you're in that customer set, which is which is certainly a helpful starting point, although it's not required. And and just understand, like, what are the what are the problems they have and what are the the problems they have that aren't being met by other vendors and understand why not. So, you know, I, I you know, give you both examples at, at movie phone, the customer pain point was it was actually difficult to find accurate movie show times in the eighties and nineties, right? You either had to buy a newspaper and most moviegoers are like 18 to 24 years old and don't have the newspaper, or you had to call individual theaters. And then there was literally no way to buy a ticket ahead of time uh, other than walking to the box office. So movie phone was just fundamentally a better way of going to the movies. And we, you know, the, the guys who started the company got that by 
standing outside of movie theaters and talking to people. And, you know, return path was the same thing. There were lots of ways to get email out the door, but everyone had the problem of not all the email got there and they didn't even know. And their current vendors couldn't solve that problem for them because it required a different business. It wasn't just about software to send the email. It was about data sensors all over the internet to understand what was happening after you pressed the send button. So the hundreds or thousands of sending platforms just weren't equipped to, to do that work. Sure, they, they could have started a new business that looked like Return Path to do it, but, but they weren't equipped to do it. Well, you think about, I'm always talking about Warren Buffett on the show here. You think about how much he likes buying in a business where he says the business has a deep moat and high walls around the castle, right? Mm-hmm. When you have an exclusive data set, when you have deep relationships with Gmail and Yahoo Mail and these folks, you know, this is, that is, at least to me, it sounds like a tough to duplicate you know, somebody's got to really invest and A and B catch up to you. Yeah, no, that, that's 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 a hundred percent the case, and and that that was true of Movie Phone as well. Once they had uh, Movie Phone had hooks into thousands of theaters all over the country where we were getting data sent to us every week, and this was before really before the before the internet, there was no such thing as an API. We had people faxing us showtimes every week, and we had twenty people sitting in a room keying them in, and that data asset was was an incredibly powerful thing for the business. The same thing with doing all the automated ticketing. Once we had hooks into box office systems, it was very, very difficult for someone else to, to come along and compete with that business. Yeah. You know, a question that keeps lingering for me here is, you know, you grow the you grow a $100 million a year company and you sell it. What's a, what's a reflection on that sale process, that excess process for, for folks who haven't been through it that you've had? We we were big at our at our last company on retrospectives and learnings and and harvesting those learnings and we did a a really lengthy retrospective you know sort of right before our our little closing dinner that the executive team had to try to understand what happened and what went well and what didn't go well and we have you know pages and pages and pages of notes from that but you know I, I would say at the end of the day we had a couple of of critical lessons that came out of things that went very well and a couple of uh, areas where we were able to really be self-critical afterwards and say, you know, that that could have gone a lot better. You know, I think on on the positive side of the ledger, we would absolutely point to our culture and our you know sort of workplace and employee engagement as something that was a really um, powerful strength of the business. And you know, as I, I always say, if you have a great well, can I pause you about that? Just because yeah, sure, everybody claims it. There's a million books about it. People talk about it all the time, and yet. There are so few that achieve it. What do you think you did different to actually achieve that? We were obsessed about it. I mean, we were, we were just obs- obsessed about it. We, we measured employee engagement regularly. We created organizational development plans. So, you know, not just a personal one. What are the things I'm working on for my career? But what is the company working on this quarter based on what we're, what we're getting out of employee surveys and understanding the things that are true and not true about employee engagement? And, you know, it's true about anything. When you, when you measure it, you have a, a good shot at managing it. But that was always just top of mind for us. It was, it was you know, almost as important as, as financial metrics. So getting down to the nitty gritty there for a minute, what did measuring look like? Is this a, is this a whiteboard on the wall? Is this a flat screen TV? Is it just a report that comes out periodically? We used a uh, product called Culture, which you know is, is one of the leading sort of employee survey tools that's out there. And we did a very extensive survey once a year and then, then three times a year, sort of at quarterly intervals, we did what we called a pulse survey, which is just a, a mini version of it. And there are lots of tools you can use for employee surveys. You can create stuff for free in Google Forms. The thing that was really powerful about CultureAmp is that it also had industry benchmarks in it. 
So for any given question you were asking your own employee set, you knew your own answer and you knew how it trended over time, but you could also compare it to best in class. And uh, you know, that that process of doing that several times a year really gave us a goal to shoot for. But but it wasn't just the measurement. It was then, okay, well, what's changed and which pockets of the organization has that's changed? Has has it changed in? And let's let's go through the process of understanding why and come up with a theory about what we should do about it. Put that out there very publicly in the company. We are going to work on doing better at X Y Z as a company, and then we expect when we measure this again next time that we're going to have moved the needle. And if not, we want to understand why not. It sounds so simple, but how many of us actually do it? Right. The good news is it's actually not that expensive. It's just something you have to care about and pay attention to. You know, I think people, it's really easy for people to say, oh, you know, great places to work, all those, you know, crazy internet people, they just, you know, you can bring your pets to work and you can, you know, they have a chef on premises. Of course, none of this stuff happens during the pandemic, but, you know, you can you can have expensive employee perks and some, look, there's no question that, you know, people like eating at Google, right? But that's not the only way to drive employee engagement. There are ways to drive it that are free or super, super low cost, but you have to really care about it and you have to work at it like anything. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about books for a minute. I, I want to talk about what is in the new one, the CXO, the startup CXO, but let's back up for a second. Tell us what some of the benefits were for you personally for writing the startup CEO and, and why write a second one. Yeah, so Startup CEO, which first was published in 2013, and then the second edition came out last year, was really an outgrowth of a blog that I've been writing for 15 or 16 years now called StartupCEO.com. And you know, I, I had just been documenting the experience of being an entrepreneur and being a first-time CEO and lessons I'd learned along the way. And I'd spent a, a lot of time over the last 10 or 15 years mentoring CEOs, usually first-time CEOs or CEOs that hadn't quite hit the stage of growth that our company had hit yet. And with, with the help of a, a longtime friend and mentor and board member of mine, Brad Feld from the Foundry Group, who's written a, a whole bunch of books about different parts of the um, startup world, I decided to try to you know turn my blog into a book, which actually meant writing a whole bunch of new things in addition to curating some of what I had already written. And the objective of that book was really to write an instruction manual for a first-time CEO. Right? You can take a lot of courses on how to do a lot of things in, in life and in business, but there aren't, there aren't any or many about how do you run a company if you've never run a company before. So Startup CEO is 65 very short chapters of how-to and you can read it front to back, but you can also just hit the table of contents if you're stuck on something and see if there's a corresponding chapter. You know, how to hire executives, how to fire executives, how to compensate yourself, how to build a board, how to manage a board, how to work with an executive assistant, how to write a pitch deck. You know, it's literally 65 very short, very actionable chapters. And my objective with that book was really to give first-time CEOs a resource for when they got stuck or how to how to stay ahead of the curve. You know, it was, it was fun to have Brad on the show. I'd heard about him for years from one of my close buddies, Josh Soloway, a securities lawyer in New York that had had kind of been mentored by Brad a bit earlier in his career out in, in Colorado. And for people who don't know Brad Feld, how would you describe his, his uh, large level of accomplishments? Well, first of all, he's probably one of the most successful venture capitalists in the world. And actually, I shouldn't say first off, First off, he's a a wonderful human being and and you know a remarkable person. He's he's remarkably intellectual. He's remarkably empathetic and warm. He's a great friend. He's a great business person. He's a very successful venture capitalist. And he has also written a ton of books over the years and and you know has really inspired me as part of that to 
you know, to, to think about that as part of giving back, you know, sort of documenting the things you know and the things that, that have worked along the way for you. So actually what, what, what got me into writing Startup CEO was, was Brad's, I think far and away, his most successful book was a book called Venture Deals. And if you, uh, if you ever need to know anything about financing an early stage company, you need to buy venture deals. And what, what happened was Brad sent me the, the manuscript in Word format, and whenever this was now, 10, 12 years ago, and, and said, hey, I'd love to know what you think about it. And I was on a, a cross-country flight, and I think this was before there was Wi-Fi on planes. So like I had this big document from Brad, and all right, so I'll do that on the flight. And I went through it and just wrote little comments off to the side, you know, a bunch of times. And I sent it into Brad and, and he said, well, thanks. You know, this is great. Would you mind if we publish all your comments and we just make it part of the book? And the, there's, there's now a sidebar in every chapter called The Entrepreneur's Perspective, which is basically like my red line of, of the book. And <laughs> so that was fun. And I enjoyed doing that. And then he and I had a lot of conversations about, you know, about sort of taking a lot of what I had learned over the years and, and turning it into startup CEO. Yeah, that's great. Well, so tell us, that's Startup CEO. Tell us about the new book. Right. So the new book, Startup uh, CXO, is, is you know, sort of designed as a, a little bit of a sequel. So where Startup CEO is an instruction manual for a first-time CEO, Startup CXO is, is kind of a book of books. So there are about I don't know, 15 to 20 chapters each for every major executive function in a team. So there's a, there's a, 20 chapter section on how to be a startup CFO. There is a 20 chapter section on how to run sales at a startup, how to run HR, how to run marketing, how to run technology, product, how to be a chief customer officer. So there are sort of eight or nine sections. Each one of those was written by a longtime executive who I'd worked with. And even though all of us had worked together at Return Path and many of the authors work at Bolster as well, all of them have very lengthy careers with interesting things before and after. And so, so in that respect, it's, you know, it's a handbook for the first time executive of anything, but because they're all together in one book, and I've written some, some things that sort of weave all of it together, you know, sort of common, looking for common threads, the book is also really sort of the, the anatomy of, of an executive team. So th there, there are a few different audiences for the book. One is CEOs, right? So if you really want, you know, most CEOs start off in life as something else, right? They're, they are a really successful head of sales or a really successful head of product. And then you're a first-time CEO. And now all of a sudden you're managing all these people who used to be your peers. And you don't, you're not necessarily sure what each one is supposed to be doing all day. So the book is really useful for CEOs as in, all right, these are the 20 things I should make sure my head of sales is doing. And these are the 20 things I need to make sure my CFO is doing, et cetera. If you are a first-time or even an experienced CXO, which is the title, right? So chief of something, your own section in the book is probably helpful, right? This is an experienced person in that field who's telling me like, these are the 20 things I need to do. It's also really useful to understand the adjacent functions. So if you run sales, having a deep understanding of what marketing is supposed to be doing at all times and how it fits with sales, or having a deep understanding of what the chief customer officer is supposed to be doing. And when you hand customers off to, to them, what does that world look like is, you know, is quite useful. And then the book, I think, is also good if you are an aspiring executive. So you, you know, you you aren't there yet. You're early in your career, but you're a, a marketing professional and you're, you know, in the events department and you want to be a CMO someday. 
understanding that a CMO does 20 things, not just the one thing you do or what the people next door to you do uh, in the next next you know office over, but what's the full range that you need to be thinking about in terms of developing your own career? What do you want to move into next and get great at? It's all, it's all there. So like Startup CEO, it's not meant to be read front to back, although it can be. It's very long. It's 150 chapters or something like that, but they're all very short, actionable you know, here's how you do X, here's how you do Y. Yeah. I mean, to me, that that's interesting. I mean, just from a book perspective, again, just being such a book nerd, to me, like, that's that's really interesting to be able to have one book that a team can buy and say, hey, everybody, everybody, let's read this book and talk about it and get this like chance to learn about each other so much. And so that's like, so is that actually how you do it? You know, like think about the natural conversations of, of everybody looking at each other's roles, plus you know everybody's going to get a new idea for their role, even if they think they're experienced, right? That, that's the that's the idea. That's the hope. You'll you'll come away with new ideas for yourself as well as just a better understanding of of how you connect in with everybody else. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in how all of this led to Bolster. Yeah, it's 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 a great a great question, and and it actually relates a little bit to the third book that we're working on, which we can talk about later. But you know, as I said, no, tell, Bolster tell people is, what it is. It's okay. Uh, yeah. So so the third book is a book called Startup Boards. So we have Startup CEO, Startup CXO, and Startup Boards. Startup Boards first edition was actually written by Brad Feld, uh, who we were just talking about, and he had a co-author, uh, Mahendra Ramsangani, and I think they published the book in 2014 or or something like that. But that book also has a lot of contributions from me in it as like the CEO's perspective on things. Brad and Mahendra and I together are co-authoring the second edition of Startup Boards, which is going to come out later this year. It's going to freshen the content because it's seven years later. And I've also written a couple of eBooks over the last few months as relating to our business at Bolster around boards and diversity in the boardroom, how to, how to build a board, um, how to succeed in a first board seat when you get promote, you know put on a board for the first time. So all that's going to be in in startup boards. But you know, if you think about all three books together, right? The CEO, CXO, and boards. That's really what Bolster does. Bolster helps startup CEOs build out their team, level themselves up with mentors and coaches, and then build out a world class board. And that's all kind of connected. Well, here's what I think we should do. When you guys are ready for that, you and Brad should come back on the show together. Let's do a joint interview, and you guys can come talk about the new book when you're ready. That'd be great. Yeah, with our third our third author as well, Mahendra. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Uh, great guy. Yeah. You know, I could have used that book. I remember 10 years ago, I went on my first two boards probably about the same time. I was in the energy business, and I was on one board with like, and I'm, again, I'm like in my late 20s, okay? <laughs> I'm on the one board with like, Four millionaires and this billionaire who are all like older than my dad, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's me and my brother who's twenty, who's two years younger than me. Okay, we're like thirty and twenty-eight or something. And then, right. and and that was a joint venture with a thirty billion dollar energy company. And then the other board I join is with a fifty billion dollar energy company, right? <laughs> on a on a renewable energy program, and it was like it was like going into the deep end. And I'm like, right. 29, 31, you know what I mean? So I, I could have used your book. That, that's that's why I wrote them. Uh, I mean, I wrote it because, you know, I, I had that same experience. I started Return Path when I was 29 years old. I didn't, I, I thought I knew so much. And then I started doing it. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything. Yeah. Well, okay. Sorry for the interruption, but I thought people should know the, tr the trifecta here, the trilogy. Yeah. Let's just do one more once over. For people who 
if we're going to go just like a, le- a level deeper on Bolster, what, what's maybe one layer deeper than, than what we, you've told us about Bolster already? So I, I would say one layer deeper is there, there are two things that we're also trying to automate. So I talked, you know, the business is a marketplace. It's about finding talent. But there, there are a couple of things we're building into it that I think are going to make it a particularly helpful resource for CEOs. One is we're building out a lot of platform functionality for VCs and board members to use as well. And, and the reason we're doing that is, is frequently when a CEO needs help at the leadership level, he, he or she turns to his or her board and says, hey, I, I need someone that can do X, Y, Z, right? My CFO just quit. I, my next senior person in the finance department can't step up. Like I, I need someone urgently. And the, the CEO's board is going to say, oh, I know a guy who does that. So that's not a particularly efficient way. Well, it may be efficient in that, you know, A connects you to B and B works. It's not a very comprehensive way of, of looking for executive talent, but it's not a bad way of getting started with a search. And we know that CEOs and their board collaborate on things like that. So we're building in a lot of functionality to have CEOs and, and board members collaborate on searches. The other thing we're doing that I'm hoping will be, you know, will be really useful, and this actually directly relates to the books as well, is we're building in a lot of assessment and benchmarking functionality into the platform for our clients. So if you think about startup CEO and then startup CXO as as books that really document what you're supposed to do in your job, whether you're a CEO or head of marketing or head of technology, we're actually building the software version of all of that. So if you're a CEO and you want to do a, a quick assessment, you know, hey, is my is my head of HR scaling? Is my head of HR doing everything that he or she needs to be doing, not just for where I am today, but for where I'm going to be in two years? We're actually building that instrument into the platform. And, you know, our, our hope and sort of early signs as we bring it to market are that it'll work something like this. The CEO will say, all right, I'm going to do an evaluation. You know, again, let's say the, my head of HR, they do the evaluation. Okay, the person is excelling in these eight or nine areas. I have no concerns about them there. You know, they're going to scale for the next several years. But, you know, here are three areas where they seem to be missing some experience. You know, maybe it's a head of HR and maybe missing experience in, you know, in recruiting and in diversity and, and uh, equity and inclusion. What Bolster can immediately do then is recommend mentors for the head of HR, right? We know enough about your company because you're our client that we know you're a, you know, a $25 million you know, B2B SaaS company on the West Coast. We can immediately then match you with experienced chief people officers who are particularly strong in recruiting and DE&I and who've worked in a B2B environment and are on the West Coast, for example. So I think the marketplace is going to be very predictive and very powerful using data and data science in these applications. That's interesting. You know, I, I'm just on bolster.com right now, and I'm looking at the the member the member side, like what if you want to be one of these people, right? And I, I'm interested, you know, so I, I took a break from finance after 2008 had worked its way through the financial system, okay? And our boutique management consulting firm is called, it's called the Arbinger Institute. And I just love their stuff. I'd been certified in their stuff just because I loved it so much and put my teams through it, right? And, and so when I said to take a break from finance, I because I, I had had a CEO strategy advisor, CEO coach, whatever I want to call them, right? And it had been like game changing for us. And so I had started doing it for free for other CEOs because I like it become a hobby, you know? So, yeah. so we moved back down in the States. I work for this firm. I think it's so cool. I get to go teach leadership lessons to Navy SEALs and CIA guys and top sales teams at Microsoft and Oracle and all this stuff, right? 
it's like my, it was great for my ADD. You got to meet all these cool people at NASA and everywhere, right? Uh, right. <laughs> and so even though nowadays I'm I'm so focused on building up our commercial real estate fund, I still have some of those legacy clients. And I keep telling people like I'm not taking new clients. I'm actually getting out of that business. And then like this month, I just took on a you know a new sixteen billion dollar bank, one of their SVPs, right? And I'm interested though of thinking about somebody like me, right? Where uh, like I'm kind of a jack of all trades. Like I spent most of my career in finance, but I also did this different stuff. And how do you, how do you, and, and maybe I'm not a good fit for something like this, but like, if you were going to take somebody like me, how do you decide like, or, or are you really looking for, no, this is an HR specialist so we can match with HR people. What do you do with jack of all trade people? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And what we've, what we've tried to do with the, with the bolster marketplace is have it based on, on experiences and on competencies. So while it's true, you, if you, when you join as a member, the first thing we ask is, you know, what's your role, right? Are you a career CFO or CHRO or, or something? And, and you can pick multiple ones if you've worn multiple hats in your career. We've also taken a lot of time to define kind of this whole taxonomy or ontology that, that powers the entire marketplace. So no matter no matter how you identify in terms of, of role type or multiple role types, you have the opportunity when you when you join to identify what we call your superpowers, right? So what are the areas of business where you really go deep? Like you, mm. this is what this is what a client should hire me to do. And it could be skills and experiences. It could be specific projects. You know, it's going to be a, a mix of the two. And yet there are certainly times where, you know, a CEO is going to come in to do a search and say, I, I'm looking for a CFO and I want someone who has been the CFO of a SaaS company and taken it from 25 to 100. And, and that's fine. Like that's a really specific need. There are also going to be times where someone's going to come in and say, I have a business need. And that business need is working on, you know, change management following an acquisition. Mm. There, there are a lot of people that could do that work, right? It could be an HR professional, but it could be a COO or a former CEO, or you know, it could be any CXO that just has deep expertise in that particular thing. So we're, we're trying to set the marketplace up so that it's really based on specific experiences and competencies. And you know, it, it may or may not be a little harder to get work that way if you're a jack of all trades. But as long yeah. as there are yeah. a bunch of things you can point to that are like, these are the five things someone should absolutely hire me to do, you should be able to uh, to find gigs that way. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think it's fun to poke fun at myself. But so, some of my clients and friends, they are, they correct me, say, quit calling yourself a jack of all trades. You're, you're a polymath. You, you've like, you've gone deep enough in more than one thing, right? Right. But okay, total tangent. But I'm interested in any of your observations on on, do you see this across the industry? Or is it just me? Like, I've been doing that, you know, thousands of hours of this executive coaching CEO strategy advisor for 10 years straight, right? And I am like, I'm like a barbell. I'm like, I've got an 80-20 split. I'm 20% like, you know, top five tech company in the world, other publicly traded companies doing 11 billion a year in revenue, these type of folks. Uh, and then 80% of the business is, you know, CEO doing a few million bucks a year. None of their executives, like only the CEO here and then nobody in the middle, and then executives on this side. Is that common, or you think that's just me? Well, I think there are there are fewer companies in the middle, right? There are a ton of startups, right? Most of which fail or get acquired mm -hmm. early or something, right? 
And then the the number of Series B companies relative to Series A is a lot smaller. And then it gets smaller when you get to C, and smaller when you get to D. Yeah, good comment. The reason it gets the reason it gets a little larger on the other end is once you've made it and you're still independent, and whether you've now traded hands and you're private equity owned or you're public, and you're likely to be an independent company for a longer period of time, there's going to be a little bit more of a concentration there. So I, I don't think that's unusual at all. Interesting. Well, listen, besides people going to bolster.com, besides people getting there, you know, going to startupceo.com and and figuring out how to pre-order their their copy of CS CXO. The startup CXO. Did I get that title right? Startup CXO. Anything else you want to leave people with today? You know, the only thing I would say, and this is I guess comes from all the work that I've done in my career and the books as well as bolster. Most people, whether it's you as a professional or the people on your team, can't scale indefinitely, but most people can scale a lot further than you think. And it's not that hard to get there if you're intentional about it and you find the right help. Mm, That's great. I love it. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks for having me, Jess.